I learned something interesting this week. I learned that Emilio and Gloria Estefan have been married for 40 years. Gloria Estefan, don't tell my wife this, but was the one celebrity I ever had a crush on. I was in junior high, and that's my excuse. I'm going with that. I also learned that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson this year will be married for 30 years. Now, this is spectacular because that means it does happen in Hollywood and Miami that people stay married for longer than the average person. Although, I don't think it's a coincidence that Gloria Stefan, Tom Hanks, and Rita Wilson all kept their clothes on while they were performing. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Donna and I are relative newcomers. We just celebrated our 22nd anniversary. And uh, thank you. Praise you. <laughs> it's all her fault that we're still married. We give her the credit. Praise Jesus. Anyone who has been married long enough to matter knows it ain't always easy. Right? Suffering is par for the course. It's not, I'm sure, easy for superstars. And it's not easy for Christians because the enemy of our souls is constantly trying to attack and needle and separate us. But we have an advantage. We know the Creator God of the universe and because we know Him, we can hold on because we are held. Successful marriage, marriage that not only lasts a long time, but brings two people closer than humanly possible, requires commitment, it requires thick skin, and it requires grace. Power to accomplish kingdom purposes. In our passage today, we are going to move into a new section of Romans. We are leaving the introduction behind and we are moving into seeing one of the most important realities that Paul is going to give us. He's going to talk about objective reality in the spiritual realm and then he's going to talk about subjective uh, ramifications of those objective realities. Some of you are going, wait a minute. What are you doing to us? Well, let's define terms here. Objective reality or objective truth is how the world is whether we know or believe it or not. Objective truth just has to do with the fact that this is how things are irrespective of whether you believe in that truth. Now, subjective truth or subjective reality is how we feel or how we experience the world, again, whether it's true or not. We might have subjective experiences of the world that just simply aren't based in reality, but they affect us. Now, because there is objective truth, because there is true truth based on real reality with regards to our relationship with the personal creator king of the universe, you and I can train ourselves 
to feel subjectively secure. Subjectively to rejoice even in the midst of our trials. You and I can have hope so that we can, through our trials, through our sufferings, press on towards love and good works. And Paul tells us that based on the reality of a solid, rock, secure relationship with God, established by grace, through faith, you and I have a hope for a future that is far better than anything that has come before. You and I can hold on because we are held. Let's read our passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through His Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that... We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Praise Jesus. We have peace with God, and we have hope in God. Now, as I said, we have moved into a new section of Romans. You'll remember that chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, is Paul's introduction. He lays out several of the themes, and he even gives us the gospel in those 17 verses so that we would be prepared for what comes next. The next section is chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to 320. And in there we find out no one is righteous. We cannot be righteous. And this is part of his key verse, which we find in 117, and that is that the one who by faith is righteous shall live. So we have to answer this question. Who's righteous? And the answer in that section is nobody. But then we have a problem. If no one is righteous, how do we do it? Well, Paul answers that in chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of 4. He says that we become righteous or we are granted righteousness by grace through faith through trusting the promises of God for us in Christ now here in chapter 5 he gets to the end of his big idea the one who by faith is righteous shall live and he wants to explain this shall live part 
And so in this section, chapters 5 through 8, we see that the one who by faith is righteous shall live free from the wrath of God. The one who by faith is righteous shall live free from sin. And the one who by faith is righteous shall live free from the curse of the law. And in chapter 8, we find out that we will live free from death and condemnation. And we will see as we go through these chapters, this whole section that we're going to be in for several weeks coming up, is that we can hold because we are held. You can hold because you are held. So let's open up our text. Verse 1 in Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see a therefore, and the therefore starting this verse is to remind us of Paul's argument through chapters 1 to 4. We have forfeited peace with God because we have sinned. And nevertheless, through faith, we can be justified by trusting his promises, and we can have a right relationship with the personal creator king of the universe, and therefore have Peace. Now this justification, this peace that we find out in Romans 5.1 is an objective reality. It is something that is true for those who have become children of God, whether they feel it or not. I have a question. How many of us in this room, since the moment we received Christ, the entire time have always only ever felt justified. How many of us, ever since we became a Christian, have always only ever felt at peace with God? How many of you know that you have been declared righteous and that you have peace with God, whether you feel it or not? See, you understand the difference. This is such a fundamental point. No, I don't always feel at peace with God. I don't. Why? Because I'm an idiot who sins. But I have that peace. And that is an objective reality. We need to hold on to this reality, whether we feel it or not. An objective fact means that it is true no matter how you look at it. And this subjective truth means that something is true or not based upon my individual experience or preference or feelings. But that is not a good measure of truth. The radical left, the political left in the U.S., has struggled ever since November 2016 because they have carried signs, not my president. Well, you know, whatever you think of Donald Trump, and we're not going to get into his politics, whatever you think of him, it is an objective fact that he is the one who occupies the office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Right? And you may not like him, but that is an objective fact. So, frankly, deal with it. Right? But Paul learns his theology from the Old Testament. And the peace 
that he is talking about here has nothing to do with who is the president of the United States. It has everything to do with who is the king of kings and the president of presidents. And Paul is making a solid, objective statement that you can have peace, not with the POTUS, but with that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he talks about shalom, he's not primarily in these verses talking about a cessation of hostilities. There, that is certainly true, and we'll get to that at the end of our passage. But here he's talking about a positive wholeness, a flourishing that is so obviously absent from the day-to-day life of the world around us and all too often in us when we are depending on stuff and circumstances and relationships to buoy our spirits. Because if you haven't noticed, those things fail us. And if that's what you're depending on for your peace... You don't have enough money. Neither does anybody. So what do we do? Preach to yourself. Don't let your own flesh preach to you. I have peace with God. Soul, why are you worried? My greatest problem is solved. I don't need to fret or fume. I'm good. Not in of myself, but in Christ. I'm good. And you can say this no matter how bad you feel because it's always true. It's an objective reality. And the bonus of preaching to yourself is this. When you start believing what is true, your feelings will follow. Your feelings will begin to change. My friends, this is a part, it's a small part, but an important part of what sanctification is, of what becoming like Christ is. It's changing how you think and choosing to dwell on what is real as opposed to your feelings. And when you do, you will, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, become more and more like Jesus. Since God has established a relationship with all who trust his promises, and since this is an objective fact for them, it's true no matter how you feel, Paul now develops a whole host of truths that will change how you feel and respond to life's sufferings. Let's begin to look at them. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now I want to notice something else. We have this justification as an objective fact. We have peace with God, which is an objective fact. But then we also have obtained access by trusting God's promises into grace as an objective fact. And you've heard me say, grace is, depending on how you look at it, two sides of one coin. It is an undeserved gift and it is power to accomplish kingdom purposes, including going through suffering. 
whatever that suffering is, physical, emotional, relational. And in this instance, we can see both connotations coming forward. Grace is an undeserved gift. And in part, that undeserved gift is the power to withstand the evil circumstances that you don't like. Grace is the power to accomplish kingdom purposes. And good thing, too, because I am in need of that power. Amen? So that I can rejoice in my sufferings. But there is the subjective side. Rejoice. Rejoice! Think about it. Rejoice! Okay. I may not be happy about the situation that I'm in, but I've got peace with God. My God is no longer angry at me. My God is no longer, no longer hates me. But he picks me up. When I'm wallowing in my vomit, he picks me up and he cleans me off. I can rejoice. And that's exactly where Paul goes. Starting in verse 3. Not only that, not only can we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Oh, I'm so glad. Because seriously, one of the things that I dread the most is being shamed. Being shamed because I do something stupid. Subjectively, humanly speaking, according to our feelings, there's an important question to ask. How can I look at my sufferings and rejoice? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't like to suffer. Anybody here like to suffer? I hate suffering. But there are several reasons giving, given in Scripture, and this one points to the fact that suffering produces, it serves a purpose. Now unfortunately on this side of the lawn, we don't get to always know why we suffer in a given instance. But one of the many reasons we suffer, and I am not claiming to give an exhaustive list, I'm not, one of the many reasons we suffer is that we need to know God better. And it's so easy to squirrel when things are going well. But when we're suffering, we look straight to Jesus. I have been with several of you over the last years and seen you suffer and seen that be true. You tell me that this is true. In God's economy, there is no needless suffering for those who are children of God. And the Christians that I have known who have suffered the most are also the Christians who are closest to God. One reason you suffer is because we live in a sin-sick world and God does not want us to get used to living here, but He wants us to keep looking for an eternal home. He wants to make us like Christ. He wants us to enable us to hold while we are suffering because we are held. Paul 
But that, that brings up another really important question. Why will we love him and trust him more? I mean, humanly speaking, why would we love him and trust him more through our worst sufferings? Hope. Hope. Hope in grace. Hope in this undeserved gift. Hope in an undeserved gift that empowers us for kingdom purposes through our sufferings. Hope. A forward-looking confidence that God is going to come through on what He said He would come through. Remember, gratitude is faith looking backwards love is faith looking at the moment and hope is faith looking forward and recognizing that God is going to come through on everything he said he would come through on hope in grace that God will come through on his promises for you in Christ is what Christianity is it is what biblical faith is. That's what it is in a nutshell. And, as Paul says in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God for at least two reasons. One is, if we are hoping in the glory of God, then while we are going through our sufferings, people will see us shine the more brightly because we're honoring Him than, more than we are just getting out of whatever trouble we're in. People don't look at you as something special while you're a multimillionaire on a yacht in the Caribbean. Oh, that's nice for you. But if while you're suffering, you're praising Jesus at the same time, and they can see you're suffering and you're still praising Jesus, wow. That speaks volumes. But secondly, at least two things. Secondly, is that we can hope in that glory of God. We can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we know that the very second we see His face, all these light and momentary afflictions will be just muted out by the light of the glory of God. They'll be a dream. Now one last observation here. Uh, In verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I I hate that I need to say this, but evidently there are those who take this verse as support for what is known as a second blessing. Different ways people have come up with this. And there are people who call themselves Christians who divide the church into different classes of Christians. There are those who have it, however they define it, And there are other Christians who are barely saved. Are you following me? You've heard things like this. Let me say in absolutely uncertain terms that Grace Santa Maria does not believe this. Your pastors do not believe this garbage. Your elders do not believe this garbage. Now, 
Does every Christian always experience the love of God in the same manner? Well, of course not. Why? Well, because we're finite, let alone sinful. Of course, there's going to be differences among people. But that's not at all what this is saying to us. What this is saying to us is that God's love has been poured into our hearts. And as we are looking to him, as we are reflecting on the objective realities, we can rejoice. Will it be like that person over there? Probably not. But that's not where your eyes need to be focused anyways. Your eyes and mine need to be focused on Jesus. Not comparing our lot to anyone else. You can hold because you are held. My friends, hold on to each other. Hold on to each other. Why? Because humanly speaking, sometimes that's all we got. Hold on to each other. King David says this, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know what I have come to know? I have come to know that I am. I have come to know that you are the goodness and mercy that follows each other. David is talking about God working at least in an aspect that God is working in you and through you to be the goodness and mercy that follows your near ones as we walk through this valley of the shadow of death that you are on right now. Right? And that is exactly, I love how Paul picks up exactly there in verse 6. Because he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now these verses are another example of Paul being very concise. I told you a few weeks ago, he kind of bounces back and forth. And here in these verses, he's drawing a comparison for us. Paul first reminds us that human love for each other is, at best, fickle. We're, we're fickle. What can I say? We don't love each other as much as we ought. Now, sometimes our, our love might reach out to bless others who are our near ones. But God's love reaches out to us in that while we were still actively enemies of God, He died for us to bring us into His family. Now, let's bring this comparison home. I don't know anyone who loves their children more than my wife loves hers. She has proven over and over again her willingness to die for her children because she lives for them every single day. That, that is just the truth as I know it. And I take it that Paul also knew examples of this kind of motherly love. And even though he knew examples like that, which I'm convinced he did, we all do, he speaks of the fickleness of human love. 
Jesus talked about fathers giving bread, not stones, and fish instead of steaks. And God loves those who trust Him with a love that makes a mother's love for her children look like hatred in comparison. Because God's love is so much greater, you can hold on because you are held. You can hold tightly to God in your struggles because He has got you. His love is better for you than your mom's is for you. Hold on because you are held. Listen. Take great risks for the great God who loves us and will never leave us nor forsake us. Love. Give. Suffer. Give and love and suffer for others by choosing to serve them rather than demand service. Listen to them. Actively pursue them so you can know how it is that you can love them. Tell people how secure you are in God's love by living as if you are secure. And hold because you are held. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are recognized, reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul picks up again on the idea of peace that he left in verse 2. And here, it's more clearly talking about a cessation of hostilities. Is okay, we're not fighting with God anymore. Praise Jesus. And we've already spent time weeks ago talking about the wrath of God, but by way of reminder, I want to read D. Martin Lloyd-Jones again because he makes it clear for us. The wrath of God is his settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of his very nature. His nature is such that he abhors evil. He hates evil. And therefore being delivered from the wrath of God means that we are delivered from the fact that God hates all that we have done. And for those who have those sins still attributed to them when they die, they will suffer the direct wrath of God. But what I'm interested here in, in these verses, I am interested in Paul's style of argument. What's going on? Paul, in these three verses, is using the form of argument from the lesser to the greater. And normally, you know, you start from the lesser. You start with something low here. But oh my goodness, what is the lesser? The lesser is God justified us by Christ's blood. That's a good place to start. I'm signing up for that. Amen. And we've already gone over this when we were in chapter 3 and 4. And then he goes on, better than that. What? Better than being justified by Christ's blood, we have been saved from God's wrath. 
This was the whole point. God's wrath starting in 118 all the way to 320. And we spent a lot of weeks. I didn't like preaching on God's wrath anymore. Some of you probably were not liking it either. But we're done. Because he has justified us. He has declared us to have a right relationship with him. What else? Christ's death reconciled us to him. Now Paul repeats himself here. God justified us by Christ's blood. Christ's death reconciled us to him. Paul is repeating himself to draw our attention to the fact that we have peace with God. We are reconciled with him. But that's not enough. Better than that. Now, Paul makes a wonderful point here. Better than being reconciled to him, we are saved by his life. If Christ's death can reconcile us, imagine what would happen if he rose from the grave. Imagine how good it would be if the grave were empty. What would happen? We would be saved by his life. He is standing at the throne of God making intercession for us. Praise Jesus. And that can be nothing but good. And better even than that, we rejoice in God through Jesus. Better than what? What? Better, 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 better. What, Paul? You're, you're going nutty here. Better than what? Anything and everything. Name it. God is better than that. Name that. Better than that. Name something else. Better than that. It takes a miracle of God breathing life into us to enable us to rejoice in God. To rejoice in Him more than stuff. To rejoice in Him more than circumstances. To rejoice in Him more than relationships. Rejoice in Him more than... Name something. He's better. And why is He better? Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That is why when you suffer, when I suffer, we know that our suffering is not pointless. We are not experiencing the wrath of God. Those who by faith are righteous shall live free from his wrath. And because you will not personally face God's wrath for your sins, you can hold because you are held. So live remembering that you have been made a friend of God. The most important thing in the universe has already been done for you. Live remembering that you have grace, the power to accomplish kingdom purposes in your life. If you can't do something, don't fume and fret. Do your best, but then realize that maybe God has that plan for somebody else. Live remembering that you have hope in the glory of God that one day everything that you have suffered will fade. Because the light of his glory will be so great. Live remembering that your sufferings are not pointless. God holds every tear. So cry. Let your tears flow. And remember that because you are held, you can hold.